As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming up today on The Audible, one of the most successful coaches in recent Big Ten history, and we get to your questions in the mailbag. All that on The Audible. Back to the Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined by Stuart Mandel, who is back in his old stomping grounds. Stu, I know this is probably one of your favorite road trips you have taken in a while, correct? Well, I haven't taken any road trips since the national championship game, but, uh, you know, probably against my better wishes, I decided a couple weeks ago to come here and check out the Northwestern basketball resurgence story. But to be honest, resurgence, doesn't that imply that they were once good? The what's the what? No, what's a better word? <laughs> the, the upstart. Emergence. Emergence. Yes. Well, so I booked it a couple weeks ago after they beat Wisconsin, thinking that by the time we got to this game, which is the Michigan game on March 1st, they would have basically locked up the NCAA tournament bid. And I could just interview people about how excited they are for that as it is, as I'm recording this, not knowing if they've won the game or not. Um, I would say people are fairly pessimistic at this point. They're just so conditioned to them blowing things. And uh, right now, it has not been going well. But maybe by the time you listen to this, they've reversed that fortune. But uh, as long as I'm here in Evanston, obviously, this being a football podcast, I figured I'd stop by and check in with our friend Pat Fitzgerald. So we are going to run that interview. And, uh, and then we are going to answer your emails. All right, I am here at my alma mater, Northwestern University, with Coach Pat Fitzgerald. And I don't know, this may be one of the first times that I came here for basketball and swung by football (laughs) rather than vice versa. Um, What's it been like here the the last couple months as the attention has grown and grown for them and their quest for the tournament? Yeah, you know, first of all, welcome home. Thank you. uh, You bet. But it's, it's been great. It's been great. I'm really happy for Chris, his staff, his guys. They've worked hard. You know, it's been a long road to get to this point now and um, looking forward to seeing how they finish things up. It's a, it's a challenge. I mean, I lived through flipping the script on a program mm-hmm. as, as a player and, and to watch what they're going through right now. It's uh, it, it's a lot harder at the finish than it is at the beginning. Everybody yeah. knows who you are. Everybody knows you're playing pretty good basketball like we did play pretty good football. So 
couple of big games here down the stretch. And for people listening, we are recording this the afternoon of the Northwestern Michigan game. We don't know yet right? whether they took that next step or not. <laughs> um, and I was going to ask you just what you said. So you were part of this team here in 95 right. that went to the Rose Bowl and just galvanized this campus. And people out there, you know, friends of mine, alums have said – Northwestern finally making the NCAA tournament for the first time would be a lot like that. I mean, yeah. do you have a sense of what what it would be like here? Yeah, you know, if they yeah. get there involved. Yeah, uh, well, I think it would just eliminate the last negative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the last negative domino to fall. I think from our athletic department of being the lovable loser. You know, <laughs> I mean, I really do. I mean, you think back to '95, and since then, football wise, we you know we we've won some championships. We've been very competitive. Won some bowl games. Um, you know, we're it's we're totally looked at an, under a different different lens um, than being the team that you know never made this or never did that. Once you can eliminate that, now it's about now building. You know, we've gotten to the we've gotten to the next level. We become a, con, a competitive team. We become a tournament team. Um, you know, now your sights are set a little bit differently. So it's it's um it's good you raise expectations externally mm-hmm. uh, they're always high internally no matter what you're doing organizationally but I, I think it uh it'll eliminate the last negative domino so to speak of our athletic department and it seems like so for you guys in 95 and i'm guessing now a lot of people listening to this are too young to remember it but um the team the, the football program had, had i believe 25 straight losing seasons and then it was just straight from that to Rose Bowl. Right. So that, you know, you guys might have expected it, but it came out of nowhere to the rest mm-hmm. of the country. I feel like the basketball fans here have been just waiting through this long yeah. grind. Like, first they made the NIT a few times, right. and, and Chris Collins got here. Like, 20 wins last year. Like, people are just kind of – it seems to me from the outside, people are just they're, – they're nervous and they're anticipating because they've been trying to get to this point for so long. Yeah, I, yeah, I would probably say you're right. Um, from a fan standpoint, that, that, that fans are nervous. And, you know, you lose your leading scorer here for the last month. It's been a challenge. And, um, you know, have had some big wins um, and, and then had some disappointing defeats. So, you know, I, I, knowing Chris the way that I know him and the staff, I, I think they're trying to pull all the, the right uh, buttons, push all the right buttons uh, to get these guys to finish the right way. And, and uh, you know, my hope is that they obviously they get there for, for them. You know, there have been a lot that have been here before them that have helped pave the way and gone through a lot of lean years. But, you know, being a part of the group that broke through on the gridiron, um, th- that was a just a, a, a unifying, galvanizer, however you want to describe it, um, uh, experience for our, our, our team. And same thing for, for the campus. So I don't know if it's going to be, the, and maybe I'm a little biased, but I don't think it's going to be the same, you know, height that it was going from nothing to the Rose Bowl. Right. But... It's definitely going to be a big, big deal. I mean, no matter uh, where they end up playing in the in the in the opening round, I'm going to be at that game. You know, I mean, I've been a basketball fan here for a long time, <laughs> and and uh, I think about all the great guys that that were here. That you know, if Evan Eschmeyer stays healthy, this is probably a foregone conclusion. You know, an NBA player, uh, but wasn't able to stay healthy. That we were we were dorm mates. We lived across the hall from each other right? freshman year. So. You know, I think back to that group, you know, Kevin Rankin and, and some of the other guys, I mean, Kip Kirkpatrick, a lot of guys that I got to know, and now to see Pat Baldwin on the bench, you know, my generation, you keep going back, you know, previous guy. I mean, they were they were close so many times. It'll be great just to get that monkey off their back and, and, and just then finally be able to move on, you know, and, and uh, to set their sights to higher, higher goals. So, yeah, I think, like you said, it, it's a little bit different. It, it won't f- feel quite as 
I mean, it'll be euphoric, but not the, quite the same as, yeah. you know, that, that. I mean, I'm curious, when you were a player that year, okay, so I'm experiencing it as a student on campus and like, wow, the Today Show is here. Right, you know, right. Like, this is yeah. crazy. Yeah. But what, what was it like to be in that? Like, when did you guys start to realize that you had, bl- you know, blown up way beyond Evanston? Yeah, probably um, after we beat Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we beat Notre Dame. We come back. We lose to Coach Walker in, in Miami of Ohio after having a big lead. You know, everybody said, you know, same old Northwestern and all that. We had to make a decision of what kind of team we wanted to be. The team that beat Notre Dame or lost to Miami. I think Coach Barnett and his staff did a phenomenal job back then. Uh, but once we went up and beat Michigan at Michigan, they had a pretty darn good football team that year. Um, I, I think all of a sudden you saw a shift that the national spotlight was definitely coming here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, even back then, I mean, it's it's twenty couple years ago, but you know every game wasn't on TV. Nope. Then you know there wasn't that. Once you kind of got into that that world, there was a lot of attention on you, and obviously. Not having a winning season since '71, the whole background of everything, it, it it got really crazy. And then I think it hit an all-time high when we beat Penn State here. Yeah, you know we got Keith Jackson and, and Bob Greasy here, and um, you know that was one heck of a football game. Moon, full moon, I think even. Well, I remember they speaking of not being on TV, like they weren't used to having games that ended in the dark. Here, they had to bring in lights yeah, just. We for still that. do. <laughs> We're not there well, yet. You're doing that, a better job because yeah. that game I watched it on TV many years later. It got really dark. Yeah, oh yeah, it was <laughs> it was pretty cool, but uh, it was a little eerie. You know, it was in October. Um, so, but it, it's awesome. I mean, it, it's just great. And this is, and, and I know we're both biased, but this is a this is a great place. And you know, a lot of times, you know, FBS football, you know, um, major college basketball. You know, your identity is an athletic department, and we've got a great lacrosse. We've got great tennis. I mean, I can go on and on with great women's golf. I mean, we have a lot of great teams here, softball. I can go on and on. Uh, our women's team went to the tournament a couple of years ago in hoops. But the narrative really gets painted not only about your athletic department, but a lot of times about your university when it comes to the sports mm-hmm. lens through football and basketball, and uh, men's basketball, that is. And now to get that... Uh, to a really healthy place, I think it's really not only great for the athletic department, but great for the university, and, and obviously great for all of us as alums. I mean, we have personal pride in our universities; we all do, and and uh, you know to keep the momentum from foot from football going into the fall or through the fall into the winter. This is the first time we've had it in a long time, hmm. and um, there's definitely a real positive buzz uh, here on campus and in Evanston. How does it uh, uh, does it um, directly impact? you guys and recruiting if Northwestern has good basketball too? Absolutely. And I'd like to think that we impact our basketball program. Mm-hmm. You know, we there's been very few recruits that we've had come to basketball games here. Uh, <laughs> just full disclosure. You know, it's it's not something that we felt like was an asset to us in recruiting. Now it definitely is. Um, style, brand. Um, you know, we play above the rim. You know, it's an entertaining game. Uh, we, we're in your face defensively. So it's definitely something that as we move move to the future will we'll definitely be an asset. And then, you know, I just, I've got great respect for Chris. I mean, we both grew up in Chicago at the same time. He was a north sider. I was a south sider. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a hoops guy. I was a football guy. So we've got a lot of things that uh, are similar in our backgrounds. He's a great father. He's a great husband. Uh, he's a great teammate here in the athletic department. Um, and, and our staffs are pretty close. 
So to see their success, we're just really, really happy for them. Switching gears here, you guys just opened spring practice. Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I, different coaches have different philosophies about it. Why do you begin in February when it's obviously not quite spring here yeah. yet? Yeah, well, we, it fits our academic calendar really well. We'll be able to go three weeks of spring ball on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule where we can have a day off of rest in between, continue to really pump the iron in the weight room, and uh, really do a great job teaching in those off days in the classroom uh, to make it just an awesome learning environment in spring practice. Instead of having, you know, we're going to go Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday and Saturday, you know, you're it just when we had done it in those schedules back 15, 20 years ago and condensed it into four weeks, mm-hmm. you know, here I really felt like we the learning environment, the teaching, the growing, the opportunity to really dig deep into what we're trying to do to build that foundation schematically and fundamentally, we, we lost a little bit. So we just try to maximize the calendar. So we'll go three weeks on. And then, as you know, here being in the quarter system, we take finals off. Then our guys actually go on spring break. Mm-hmm. Uh, newfound thing in college football. Uh, and they'll, they'll go away. Yeah, I'm just joking. And uh, they'll go away for spring break. We'll come back and have two weeks. So, um, you know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of two different uh, spring spring balls, so to speak. Um, and our guys stay really focused and disciplined. So I, I really love it. And then, you know, a guy gets banged up, you know, rolls his ankle or something of that nature in the first couple of weeks. We, we, we can get him back for those second two weeks. Are you researching for Italy next year? No. We've already gone for 25 years off campus for practice. Yeah. We go to beautiful Kenosha, Wisconsin. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why it hasn't gotten that kind of pop. I mean, Somehow you know, the NCAA didn't uh, get all worked up. No, that. the brat stop. You know, nobody gets upset about the Mars Cheese Castle. You know, nobody's upset about us going to Kenosha. But... Uh, Oh, it is what it is. You know, it's great. It's great for college football and, uh, you know, teach their own. I mean, we, we do what we do that fits who we are. And, and um, you know, that's why we, we've gone spring practice early. I mean, this has been a long time now. We've been doing this for almost a decade doing it this way. Mm-hmm. So it works out great for us. I hadn't thought about this till just now, but uh, just like you mentioned, you know, trying to get the monkey off the back, the, 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 the negative publicity has come with for basketball for so long. You, know, you went through a period of years there in the Big Ten where everybody was ragging on the Big Ten and what's right. wrong with the Big Ten. Sure. What have these last couple of years been like since Urban got to Ohio State, Harbaugh, Franklin, you know, four teams in the top ten most of, I think, the second half of last season? Yeah, well, I think our league, top to bottom, is as competitive as any. Um, you know, I think everybody's doing a good job. I, I, I look at Indiana going to back-to-back bowl games, you know, the investment that – you know, our rival Illinois has made and bringing in a great man and a great coach and, and Coach Smith. Um, you, you know, I, I think that it, it there was a lot of turnover coaching-wise there for a little while, uh, which obviously anytime there's change, it, it takes a while to get your players in and get your schemes in. It's pretty hard to have that quick flip, you know, unless you inherit a great team. Um, and, and, and some guys have been fortunate to get that opportunity to inherit some great teams. But more times than not, you, you've got to get some things, you know, changed uh, within the way that you do things. So, um, you know, I think it's a really competitive league. I think, again, the narratives about your conference are written in the first month of the season in your non-conference and really your Power Five marquee games, and it could be only three or four. Uh, and so that's the narrative. Then you get into league play uh, and how many upsets happen. Mm-hmm. And, and if the, 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 the so-called uh, – you know, power teams win, then the, then typically the league is perceived as being healthy. You know, so in our league, if Michigan and Ohio State and, and uh, you know, Nebraska and, and Wisconsin and Penn State are winning, then I think nationally the league sees us as being, you know, sees our league as being strong. Um, but I, I look at it through a little bit of a different lens. I think it's more if you really watch the games, what's the competitive nature of the games? And, and every every 
game I, I, I've looked at. There haven't been very many that have been blowouts uh, in our league. So top to bottom, I think there's a there's a, 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 a pretty small gap, at least between the bowl teams and to the championship team. Um, and then your, your last narratives are written in bowl season, right? And so this year our bowl season wasn't very good as a league. And so, you know, you kind of come in, had a great regular season, but not a great bowl season. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's just that's the circle of life, you know. It's 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 kuna matata, you know. It's the way it goes. Those narratives get written that way. And it's the same thing with your team individually. I mean, we started poorly. We didn't play very well in a non-conference slate, um, you know. And I, I think we definitely improved uh, throughout the season. And then obviously, you know, I think we we peaked, you know, the last game of the season and, uh, against Pitt. And then maybe the last month we probably played our best football, even though we didn't win every game. So, you know, trying to get, carry that momentum. You know, into the early winter workouts in January. Now in the spring ball of, you know, just how hard the guys work to to be consistent. Yeah, I mean, last season, nobody after those first two games would have expected you guys to be in a bowl game, mm-hmm. much less obviously beating a, sure. a pretty good pit team. I, I mean, they're the only team that beat the national champs, so I assume you guys have, you know, created a trophy for that, right? You beat the team that beat the. Oh, national I'm, sure, team. <laughs> I'm sure our internet fans have. Yeah, no, no, I'm sure the bloggers have got. We're. we're uh, what is it, the seven degrees of separation to a championship? But, yeah, yeah. I mean, we got what we deserved. You know, we got a little banged up in camp and uh, probably didn't manage the team well enough when I look back. Um, you know, we, we played a very good team in the opener. As you, you know, you see a team in, in Western that goes undefeated. Uh, but had, you know, no, no, not to discredit them, we didn't play very well. And then uh, I took a lot out of the guys the next week in practice. And one of the, you know, if it got some great mentors of mine that um, – some are still in coaching, some are retired, some have passed away. And and one of the best pieces of advice I think about, I got from that group is just make sure your team's fresh on Saturday. And, you know, I brought our squad in here to play Illinois State, and I, I, I took their legs from them, uh, you know, Monday through Friday that week uh, to kind of set the tone of where we needed to go for the rest of the year because I just felt like we weren't in the right mental state. And then we ended up losing that game, and, and Illinois State beat us. We deserved to lose that game. But I think we learned. We learned a lot. And uh, I think our, our, our seniors kept us together. I think our younger players that were twos going into the year, kind of comfortable, happy to be a two, but didn't put in the mental or physical or emotional preparation to become ones. As injury happened, we kind of had to force feed them into that mentality and took more of an off-season approach, a spring ball approach to some some weeks, Illinois State being one of them. And I, and I, and I think we improved because of that. And each team's different. You know, I haven't had to do that in a while. Um, and um, you know, obviously, anytime we lose, it's my it's my fault. It's my responsibility. But um, if I were to do it again, I'd probably do it the same way. So hmm. um, you just you just can't predict sometimes the DNA of your attitude of your squad. And we just needed a little bit of a wake up call, and I think we got it. That week after the Illinois State game, mm-hmm. I mean, you've been here at that point last was your 11th season last yeah. year. That week after the Illinois State game was the most criticism I've ever seen in the media toward you. Sure. And, you know people calling for you to fire coaches sure. and all that it, that's what we do right in the fans and media right. we, we we need jerk like that right. when you're in the middle of it right. how do you keep from i'm trying to say like how how do you continue to know that like well despite what the evidence on the field just suggested right we're going to be okay well I, I think you have to trust and believe in who you are and what your vision is and, and what has worked in the past it um you know, I guess it's an old school approach. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, you know, the teams that I've seen be successful consistently in our league throughout the country, the ones that I've studied throughout my whole football experience, even going back to when I played in high school, 
Um, they know who they are, they do what they do, and when they're not doing it well, they get better at it. They don't try to do a million different things. They just kind of get back to the ABCs and the one, two, threes. And, and we were doing those very well. We were blocking very well up front. You know, we were getting up and under it and doing different things that you just cannot do. And I think you inspect it as a coach first. And when, you know, I meet with my staff and we've identified the problems, we've, they've presented me solutions. Let's go out and, and have the solution happen. And, and you, know, you, you can't fix the previous two games, but let's get better today mentality. I saw that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, to a fan, you see three hours on a Saturday. Now I guess we're all complaining because it's three hours and twenty, three hours and thirteen minutes. So we should totally change all the rules of the game. Well, uh, you, we'll you obviously haven't been watching a lot of SEC uh, three thirty Eastern games. They go a lot longer than that. <laughs> well, we could talk about yeah. fly off off the podcast here, but you know, um, I, I just trust and believe in our people. I trust and believe in, in our players. We didn't start the way we wanted to, and, and we, we had to get it fixed, and I think we did. Um, there's a lot of noise that happens within a season. Every game is its own season. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, you, when you, you have two losing seasons, you know, against the two teams that, you, you know, when you go into the year, you go, all right, for us, if we won a championship in the Big Ten, we got to win these games. And you don't, you don't play very well. Uh, there's nowhere to go but up, even though everybody outside the program feels like the sky's falling. So, you know, we just stayed the course, and, and uh, we worked hard to get better. And then, and, and then the, the, the players, I think, our guys were very honest. I mean, they, I think they, they, they took to the coaching. I think they took to the fact that they were better than they were playing. Why are we doing this? You know, why, 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 why would we play this way? How are we going to fix it? Let's go fix it. And, and uh, we did it together. So, you know, credit goes to the staff and to the players. And now we're a 7 one football team. That's not good enough. Um, but I think it – it showed everybody that if we, 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 we stick to who we are and just work to get better, we can we can do whatever we can set our mind to. The year before was a big year for you guys, 10 wins, mm-hmm. but the bowl game didn't go well. Mm-hmm. This past year, not as many wins, but the big bowl went over Pitt. What right. what feels better in the, once you get to the offseason? <laughs> well, what I mean, carries you through the next eight months? Oh, I, I, uh, neither for me. Yeah. I mean, it has nothing. I mean, where we're at now has nothing to do with what we were doing against Pitt. I, I think your fans feel a little better when you lose your last game. I mean, they, you know, they walk with a little bit prouder, uh, especially when you win a bowl game. I mean, there's no question about that. It's not like we've got the, uh, you know, the trophy case full of uh, bowl championships. So um, I think our fans are, are happier that, that, that we won a bowl game. Um, you know, I, I, we look at it as, as a staff. Of, of all the things we have to do to improve to be a championship team and that's what you do you start right back from square one with winter workouts in January and this is a new team than it was however many days I mean we started the Tuesday after Dr. King's holiday so I mean you're talking 20 days after I mean that team the day we put the uh, pinstripe bowl championship in, in, into our trophy case you know from a standpoint of in the locker room we went at Yankee Stadium the minute we walked out of that locker room that team died and the new team was born simultaneously so, you know, you got to go back to, to what you do and how you do it. Um, the way we started is in the weight room and conditioning, and it's not unique to anybody else. Um, but there are certain ways we do things around here. Um, and, and I think it's a little bit um, more positive from a standpoint, I think, internally in the locker room when you win your last game. But it doesn't mean anything compared to where you're going and what you're starting. Because, I mean, we got great seniors that have graduated and they're no longer part of the team dynamic. And so... Who's going to now step up? Who's going to be the new leader in this right. position or fill that role? Or, you know, that 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 that's starting to form there in January. And then that's another reason why I like going to spring ball in, in, in the end of February. Let's go play some ball and see really who's 
who's stepping up? And then we get a two-week period as a staff to say, okay, we really kind of have a good idea of what Johnny can do and Demetrius can do. Let's kind of mold the last half of spring ball maybe a little bit into trying some things out based on our skill set. So, um, you know, by the time we get on the road in, in, in April, May, we got a pretty good idea where our squad's at. Mm-hmm. Then we can extend our summer workouts because we're in school till June. Did you know in April, spring football or April, May, whatever, last year that Austin Carr was going to be a Blitnikoff finalist? No. <laughs> no, I didn't know in the first month of the season. I mean, what a, what a great story and, and what a special young man, you know, a self-made man. I mean, he, he, he bought into what Dennis Springer, our wide receiver coach, was t- teaching. He worked his tail off to get, you know, stronger. I mean, you look at his picture. I mean, everybody makes fun of Tom Brady's picture from the combine. I mean, you know, when Austin got here, you know, to what he became and his his just physique and how hard he worked to to become a Big Ten receiver, uh, that legacy is going to continue on a lot longer than being a finalist for the Blitnikoff Award around here. Uh, but very, very proud of him. I, I think that it just goes to show you if if you you have the right mindset and the right work ethic, anything can happen for you. And uh, what a what a great finish to it. Just a terrific career for him. It's okay. Every spring football, everybody wants to know who's next. Who, right. Who fills in there? You're right. Well, I've got to ask some names. It's been interesting. You know, I, I, I said to the guys when, you know, our, our beat reporters, when I met with them, I, I said, none of you asked me about Austin Carr last year. You know, so now they're all asking about Austin Carr. I said, well, you know, who, who who's going to be the the next this or the next that? That might be the story you got to figure out. You know, yeah. I'm not sure. We, you know, but, um, you know, the, the kids are working, the guys are working hard. And, um you know, we'll see how things play out, but I, I, I still have no idea who's gonna, you know, fill those roles. And I think a lot of last year came down to the trust that, that Clayton had with Austin. I mean, Clayton knew when he put it in a certain spot, Austin was gonna go get it. Um, and and when you've got that kind of trust, that's why you end up having you know the type of success that they had together. Yeah, and speaking of Clayton, so you had to, you went through his. Uh, he started as a redshirt freshman and into last year, and you know we talked earlier about like kind of remaining true i mean you had to be patient and and kind of tune out everybody outside or like how come he's not better yet and then he took and i guess something happened the light bulb went on he got a lot better well he was a season. sophomore yeah. yeah i mean he was a freshman he went i mean it was unbelievable yeah but you realize that people see like you know johnny manzel started going to heisman as a redshirt freshman like people don't have that that patience that yeah, they yeah well sure yeah and i well I, I don't really care to be honest yeah. with you I, I, that's part of it i mean I, again i i think you know, if I were to have a consulting firm to consult head coaches, uh, the first thing I would say is if you want to listen to the noise, it, it's going to get really loud. I mean, you, you have to focus on what you can control. And, uh, you know, we got a redshirt freshman quarterback that leads us to 10 wins. That's spectacular. That is unbelievable. Uh, you know, the first question I get is, is well, you, you really won in spite of him. Well, wait a second here. You know, Next really, that's 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 fascinating to me. You know, we got a redshirt freshman quarterback that that wins a lot of games, and last year he was just much more confident. He played, um, I think, within himself, within the offense. He had some guys play much more consistent around him, um, but I think he's a big time player, and um, I, I really look forward to the next chapter here. He's had a great start to the spring, and and um, I, I think he's a big time player. Well, I'll wrap it up here. I'll look forward to seeing you at the game tonight and good luck with the rest of spring practice. And thanks for indulging me a little bit earlier about reminiscing about 95. I'm sure you don't mind doing that. No, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting gray. So I enjoy (laughs) going back when I had a neck and was in shape, but I appreciate it. Appreciate what you do and and all of your uh, teammates in in the media. It's, this is a fun time of the year in college football. It's kind of a lull for fans a little bit, but 
you know, this is when all of our teams are made, you know, and there's no, I know we, a lot of us have beat reporters that cover us and things of that nature, but this isn't the sexy time of the year, but this right. is really when teams are made and just appreciate what you and you get and your teammates do. All right. Thank you very much. Pat. Thanks buddy. Go cats. We'll be back to the podcast in a minute, but first I want to tell you about our sponsor, blue apron. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And for how that works, let me tell you, a big box showed up at my door the other day, opened it up, and sure enough, there were three recipes for three different meals, all the ingredients you needed, easily labeled, the meat was in the freezer section, uh, everything you needed to make some delicious chicken enchiladas. Blue Apron, you choose from a variety of new recipes each week, or you let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. The recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. And Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook, or they'll make it right. So here's what you do. You check out this week's menu and you get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash audible. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash audible. Rob Stone, hit it. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. It's actually uh, been a few, a couple weeks since we've we've hit the email, hit the mailbag, and they've been piling up to the point where uh, some of them I read and I said, didn't we already cover this? And then I realized, no, we hadn't. So let's catch up. Ready? Let's go. This question is from John M., who says he's on a cruise somewhere between Jamaica and the Grand Cayman Islands. He was at that point. If he still is, it's been a really long cruise. Yeah, he's probably pretty fortunate um, to be enjoying. Well, I guess it's probably not a bad winter wherever most people are. But uh, what effect, if any, does a self-imposed bowl ban announced in advance have on a team's motivation? And does it affect how recruits view the head coach's reputation if the violations precipitating the bowl ban occurred under his watch? Obviously, that is a reference to Ole Miss sanctioning. You know, I think we've found over the years that college players are pretty – immune and resilient to this and if anything i mean usc's best season under lane kiffin was when they were banned from a bowl uh or, or the year ohio state was a banned from a bowl urban meyer's first season they go 12 and 0 penn state played better than people expected under bill o'brien i think guys just want to win football games and regardless of where the season is going to end up the other part's interesting i don't know that as much as they view the head coach's reputation as I would assume it's going to be very hard for Hugh Freeze to recruit right now, given that other coaches are all telling these kids he's going to get fired. Yeah, and I think the bigger question is going to be, and this is the issue that why I think Ole Miss needs this resolved as soon as possible, is how long is the postseason ban going to be? Is the NCA, which it feels like the NCA almost never accepts all the self-imposed sanctions. So is the NCA going to say it's only going to be for the 2017 season? Or if you're a recruit, are you walking into a place where you immediately have no chance at postseason? And so that to me is is the the biggest thing here. And, you know, going into 
you know, did they, will they find out in the middle of the fall? Will they find, will they not know? I mean, could this thing drag out so they wouldn't even know into into the winter next year or possibly into you know to sign recruits? I mean that that to me would be the most damning thing for Ole Miss ultimately. These things do drag out. I would think this one will be that they will get an answer. Uh, probably sometime during football season. So I don't think it's going to drag all the way to the next signing date. But nevertheless, it would almost be, I mean, it would almost be better for Ole Miss if, if we accept that it's inevitable that Hugh Freeze doesn't make it through. And I understand that the school right now is standing by him. I don't think he's going to make it through. It would almost be better if they could cut ties right now because then a new coach would come in and sell them on, you're going to come come in and help us restore the program. And I do think that if a player really wants to go to a school, he's okay with not going to a bowl game his first season. Well, keep in mind, Stu, though, if they do were to cut ties, unless they're going to hire Chip Kelly, they're probably not hiring a coach for another, you know, probably into at the earliest early December. So it's not like you're going to get a, You're going to be able to get recruits to come in and whoever this person is, is going to be able to say yes uh, this is the direction we're going in to sell recruits. That ain't happening regardless at the earliest till December. So I think it's going to be another year in limbo. I know that the uncertainty of it affected their most recent recruiting class, and I would assume it's going to affect this one pretty badly as well. You know, Christian Hackenberg went to Penn State knowing he wouldn't be able to play in a bowl uh, his first, I believe, first two years. No, first year. Well, at that point, he thought he would never get to play in a bowl until they shortened it. Uh, Lane Kiffin signed a ridiculous class that I feel like had, was it Robert Woods and uh, Marquis Lee was in the next year. He signed a ridiculous class, number one class on rivals, even not knowing what was going to end up happening. So it is possible if kids really want to go to the school, but I just think in this particular case, it's it's the combination, the, the, the one-two punch of not knowing what the if there's going to be another bowl ban and not knowing if their coach is going to make it. Um, all right. This is how much we're catching up. We're still getting stuff from right after signing day. Chris champion asked the Ubers says he loves your piece on the run up to signing day with the LSU staff where you were embedded with them in that piece. I didn't see any reference to the two assistants who were let go or reassigned the day after signing day. Curious if you picked up any indication this was coming or did it come as a surprise? Uh, no, I, it wasn't this much of a surprise to me at that point. Um, you know, I, I think what was what was out there for a while for people at least to you know know Ogeron or know USC stuff was that he's very close to Tommy Robinson, who's arguably USC's best recruiter. They they had a great relationship when he was the uh, when they worked together at SC. So the idea that he would likely end up on his LSU staff wasn't a shock. Um, I just think it ultimately came back to, you know, it didn't seem like the two assistants who are no longer there were, were ideal fits for where he was going, going forward. And, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's kind of a a stretch to think that a a new head coach is going to keep the entire same staff because most of those guys were not guys he hired. And obviously, Obviously, Matt Canna, the offensive coordinator, was, and he, you know, he moved on from Cam Cameron pretty early. But considering that, it didn't surprise me. Um, I think it's probably surprised some people that Damian Craig has been passed over a few times since he's been let go. You know, and I do think sometimes guys' reputations as um, as recruiters and where they fit sometimes its beauty is in the eye of the beholder. How do you feel in general, though, about 
this, you know, it happens every year and it happens all over the place where once they wait until they've got the class locked in, the kids can't go anywhere to say, all right, the position coach that recruited you, he's fired now. I think there's a lot of factors going to it. In the case of this, it wasn't like they were sitting on, you know, those two particular coaches had a bunch of kids. I mean, some of the guys they signed had been in for, you know, were mid-year guys and the other guys, they, were, they just weren't, um, you know, the guys they were, they were sitting on mostly were tied to his outside linebackers coach. So... I don't think that was a case. If you look at who those particular guys signed, it wasn't like, hey, we got to wait through signing day. You know, and I think that that's a sometimes that gets brought up and other times people go, well, why did these people all of a sudden move? Well, sometimes, you know, a job opened up here um, and maybe it was tied to a contract or maybe it was tied to a guy waiting on something else. And then things kind of it's like a series of dominoes. But in the case of that, if you look at who those guys recruited, it wasn't like, OK, this guy is just sign, you know, chase on their best pass rusher. Um, they, those guys weren't involved in, with some of those guys. What do we have next? Uh, this next question is from Shane McGrath from Greensboro, North Carolina. Bruce and Stu, in light of all the recent discussions concerning the top players you have covered during your careers, I wanted to ask you about the best coaches that you each have covered, not necessarily in terms of on-the-field success, but in terms of having engaging and entertaining personalities. Who among current, active, and former coaches would you put in your Mount Rushmore of storytelling? After hearing the Gene Chizik interview, I became more curious about coaches and their and their lives, personalities away from the film room and practice field. Thanks for the continuing the podcast during the offseason. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Shane, for that. So that Gene Chizik interview just keeps getting positive feedback. I, one of the better ones, I think, we or better received ones that we've done, and in particular, people like that he talks so much about off the field stuff. Uh, I have to think that we are both going to agree that the best storyteller, especially when it comes to non-football related stuff, is your guy Mike Leach. Uh, he's definitely the most long-winded storyteller. I don't know if he's the best storyteller. Well, he's the—he's going to tell you the most. Yeah, I mean, he's no other coach in the country is going to tell you the kind of stories that he's going to tell you. Yeah, he is definitely the the change-up pitcher of all the you know, if it's a baseball term of all these guys. If I gave you five names of five people you would most like to to talk to or have lunch with or have a beer with who are coaches you've either covered who may be not in college football or retired or guys now, who would you put on that list? So people are going to hate me for saying this and they're going to be surprised. But if you said you get to talk to any college football coach for an hour about anything you want, who would it be? I'm going to say Nick Saban. People don't realize this, but like if you get him privately as opposed to the press conferences where he's always very surly, uh, he talks football. I mean, mostly he wants to talk football. I don't think he's, you're going to get him to open up about much else, but, um, he's very candid and very thoughtful and frankly, a better interview than most college coaches. Okay. Give me four more now. Uh, you're kind of putting me on the spot here. Why don't we go one by one? Who's your next one? Uh, I don't know if it's my next ones, but these are the guys that came to mind. Uh, Dana Holgerson is as candid as there is. Love talking to him. My outside-the-box one, and probably surprised some of our colleagues, is Chris Peterson. I've always had really engaging, interesting conversations with him. Um, I just like that he's I'm more interested in talking to him than I am the leech, by the way. You know, whatever, that Pac-12 conversation they came up about if they were on a car trip. I'd much rather sit in the backseat and listen to Chris than Mike. Now, granted, I've heard most of Mike's B-list material, but... 
So I think I would then go to David Shaw. Uh, he's, you know, we had him on the, or I had him on the podcast on signing day. Mm-hmm. He's great to talk to about just about anything. Agreed. Yeah. I would think the person you just heard from would fall on that list, Pat Fitzgerald. Yeah, I think we kind of separating these into two things where it's like guys you think would really, you know, find engaging and then other guys who are probably SID's dreams. And I would think Pat is, is one of those. I definitely think, like you said, David Shaw's where they, where you could go to them with anything. Now, if he's specifically asking for like maybe older, legendary icon coaches who could tell you about what it was like in the old days, I mean – Bobby Bowden can tell you all about, you know, like yeah. the entire Bear Bryant, you know, going in and working at clinics with, you know, for Bear Bryant and, um, you know, West Virginia. I mean, he's, he's a walking encyclopedia of college football history. I'm going to throw out, by the way, three names of guys that I want to work in here in the last one. You'll, you'll go, yeah, I probably should have thought of him. Uh, first thing is just from my experience of, of doing these like kind of half off the record, you know, kind of, uh, TV interviews with coaches on Fridays. And this includes coordinators. If you had to guess in the big 12 slash pack 12, who would be, I don't know. He's, I, I think he's the crew I work with to his favorite, most candid guy. Now he's not a head coach. He's a coordinator. And he's in which conference? I'll narrow it down. Say he's in the Big Twelve. It's Oklahoma State, right? It's. Uh, am I on the right track? No, you're not. Oh. You're not. Um, by the way, Gundy, though, just from a just as an aside, Gundy is real has always been very good to us in terms of just if you're a TV person. In my own experiences with the stuff that a lot of times guys would be uncomfortable with, like coming off the field, he gives good answers at the halftime stuff on or off camera. Also, he will do stuff where it's like, yeah, I'll do that interview right before we're about to kick off or something. So, um, you know, I appreciate that from so him. No mystery coordinator. It is David Gibbs. Oh, really? David Gibbs is gold before, <laughs> you know, the day before a game. Yeah. He's good. Tony Gibson's really good too, but, but yeah, David Gibbs is awesome every time. So, uh, the guys I was going to say who you should have thought of, even though he, I, neither one of us probably would have given him credit as a head coach when he was Bob in this Davey. capacity. What? Bob Davey. No, no. Dave wants that. No, of course. I, I didn't, I, I don't know why we, why I didn't think of him. I mean, we, we brought him on here specifically to tell stories. That's the thing though. He's. Don't you know? I think they become much better storytellers once they are definitely yeah you know, off the record coaching. or whatever. Yeah, like they aren't afraid to piss anybody off at that point. This question leads me into something I wanted to bring up to you a couple of weeks ago. We never had a chance. So there's been some talk about Tommy Tuberville possibly running for governor of Alabama. He was definitely one of the most, I mean, just accessible. Call him up anytime you want. He'll talk to you. You know, he'll be honest about it. He he would definitely be in this in this Mount Rushmore. Not for me, he wouldn't, but, um, okay. uh, and, and just the honest part didn't sit well with me on a couple of times where I, there's stuff I remember I had reported and he kind of contradicted it publicly and then it came out to be true twice. So yeah. Well, that's not good. But who was a couple of head coaches you could see as say, Oh, this guy would have been or could have been, or should, or I could see him as a politician successful. Um, Hmm. I'm guessing you would probably throw the two guys you just mentioned, which is one, David Shaw. Yeah. Yeah, Fitzgerald could definitely do it. Um, But beyond that, what about our guy, Brett Bielema? 
Wow, I never would have thought of him. Brett Bielema is a lot of fun to talk to. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think he has too many public moments that probably. Do you think if Kirk Ferentz retired and ran for office in Iowa, he would win? Depends on what they did the year before. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I'm just trying to think of somebody kind of distinguished like that. Somebody who, although, you know, these days people don't even necessarily look for people who seem like politicians, as yeah. we know. Well, Mark Ricks. Maybe. I mean, I always thought he would go do, you know, mission work or something like that. I mean, the guy who comes to my mind the most, and he's he's been the one who will speak out on issues, has always been Bill Curry. Um, you know, he'd worked in TV. He was a Vince Lombardi guy. He's very thoughtful. Now, why do you think we both made it this far? And the question was specifically about storytelling. How did we neither of us say Dabo Sweeney? You know, I thought of him. I mean, we, there's a lot of good choices. Neither one of us said Rich Rod. Rich Rod's a great Rich storyteller. Rich Rod's a good storyteller, but I think Dabo would probably come in number one. I mean, really? even, even in those group scrum sessions, he's always telling stories from... Yeah, he is terrific. He's terrific in front of the podium. I mean, I the reason why I give Rich Rod the credit is just because I've seen him work a booster circuit, and he's the only coach I could see him doing a stand-up act. Now, I'm, there's probably college basketball coaches who are that way, but I could see that. So We should uh, probably move on. Yes, thank you, Shane, for that question. That was a good jumping-off point for us. So Chris asks, with spring practice looming, quarterback competition will start getting more buzz. Two have caught my eye. Arizona State is scheduled to have six QBs next season, including three from the 2015 recruiting class alone. Though the recent NCAA appeal and new OC hire both seem to help Blake Barnett. And he, the point he's making there is that Blake Barnett, who transferred from Alabama after playing the first part of last season, in a decision I don't quite understand, is allowed to play right from week one. Mm-hmm. And Stanford has four highly rated QB ro- recruits on the roster next year. But Keller Chris might miss the start of the season. Any insight into these two situations that are a chance of cascading transfers a la Alabama? And most importantly, P.S., both of your pronounce, pronunciations of Cutter and Katar last week are considered correct. I can jump in on Stanford and ASU. Uh, Stanford, I know they like K.J. Costello. He came in last year's class, pretty touted kid from Southern California. Uh, he is... You know, I just talked to somebody recently from there. There's some pretty good confidence about him. The kid they they just signed is a Georgia kid who's very talented, but was coming off injury. Um, we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens with Keller Christ. I think they were encouraged by the direction he was going in. Then he obviously had the surgery. I think realistically, it's it's kind of how uh, Chris pointed out. He's probably a stretch to think he's going to be close to 100% and have worked on it right before he gets into camp. Um, on ASU, this he's right. This is a fascinating one. Blake Barnett was a huge recruit. Manny Wilkins, who they like, and is a good leader and makes plays and didn't have much around him last year, especially on the offensive line, you know, battled through some injuries. They Again, I mean, he's not going to be easy to overtake. The guy I thought would eventually be a real factor there. Brady White, really talented kid, really good passer, really bright kid. Uh, he had a pretty bad injury, and I'm not sure how far along if he gets close to being 100%. Uh, and they have a younger kid who is a freshman who's from Texas, really raw, but they liked him too. So we'll see what happens. Billy Napier, as uh, Chris alluded to, had been around Blake Barnett when he was the receivers coach at Alabama. Now he takes over that offense. Um 
It's going to be interesting. I mean, they, they got all those kids got a lot of talent. They got to get way better on the offensive line, though. Anybody who watched that Thursday night game we did against Utah where, you know, it was just a free-for-all and Manny Wilkins was lucky to walk off the field, uh, they need a lot of help. It would certainly be a big letdown, I think, if, if Blake Barnett doesn't win that job. I mean, this is a guy who was as heralded a recruit at the, in that class as they come, was the opening day starter for the eventual national champions last year. You know, and he's going into a, a program that, frankly, I think we would both agree has plateaued over the last couple of years. So they desperately need somebody like him or maybe one of the younger quarterbacks to, you know, really um, bring a spark to that offense. Yeah, I don't really, you know, again, I think they had so many issues. Remember, Manny Wilkins was a, basically a, a first time starter last year, too. So I think there's again, I, I don't know if it's easy to to dismiss him. I think some of the issues they had or why they were so bad was just because their defense was so shaky. So we've only got time for maybe one or two more. Okay. Uh, This next question is from Brian Richmond in Seattle. Bruce and Stu, there's a group of ND fans who think Jack Swarbrick is the devil. Ouch. And blame him for ND's lack of success in football. I, as an ND alum... And I don't agree with this. I am an ND and I don't agree with this. I think he has been smart, steady leader through a time of turmoil. What is your outsider's view of Swarbrick and where does he rank among NCAA ADs? So we both first started talking about this, granted, before their disastrous season last year, but I feel like maybe last offseason, we specifically ranked who we thought the best ADs were, and we both said Jack Swarbrick was one of I believe the three best. Wasn't that what it was? Three or five best. Yeah, probably definitely one of the five best. Look, I understand the frustration. The program tanked last year, um, and Notre Dame fans have extremely high expectations. My question would be, short of firing Brian Kelly, which I know a lot of them wanted him to do, and frankly, I don't know that people even know whether that was realistic financially. It's just a lot of like people who don't have to control the purse strings saying, fire him, fire him. Um, what what would, what was he supposed to do here? What, what what is he not doing that is that is um, impeding their success? Would they like him to unilaterally change the academic requirements? Would they like him to uh, change the game times? Tell the networks to stop showing them in prime time so they're not getting back to campus at four in the morning every week. Um, you know there are any number. I, I'm not you know some Notre Dame fans look at that all as an excuse. I think maybe what frustrates them is that Jack Swarbrick is very realistic about the 2017 model of Notre Dame football. It is not 1988. It is not 1964. And therefore, it's a little more patient with Brian Kelly than they are. But uh, the devil? No. I, I mean, this is the guy that got them in the ACC. And maybe they don't like, some people don't like that. But I think given, I mean, they were in tenuous ground there when the Big East crumbled. You know, who knows where they would have ended up. They got a really sweet deal with the ACC, and that was all Jack Swarbrick. Yeah, I mean, it's a unique situation. Here's what I would come back to. Notre Dame does not have, again, let's measure them up to what is the gold standard of college football right now and has been for the last decade, and that's Alabama. Notre Dame does not, is not committed to playing football at the same level as Alabama is. That's just a reality. Um... That is not even – it's not even close. It is nobody, not even close. With the caveat that nobody is as close as Alabama is. Yeah. So basically you're saying because Notre Dame's not willing to – and I assume – I don't know this for a fact, but I assume is not willing to pay for 21 analysts. That they're not no, I think there's a lot of other factors that go into that though. 
there that no go into of money. Uh, you know, it's not just money. Football. There's a lot of other issues that go into it. And Notre Dame, you know, and you can say somewhat to their credit in some other ways. I mean, but they are not. And I would put like there are a handful of other schools in the top 10 that are much closer to the Alabama model than what Notre Dame is. And it's not just about what you pay the analysts. Um, and I think those are the those are the realities. Uh, but the, here's the the challenge in this. I bet you most people don't know who Stanford's AD is. And Stanford, you know, has a very unique academic situation. They are often taking and, you know, there, there are some borderline students that Notre Dame has accepted to play football that Stanford couldn't touch. Yet Stanford has been much more successful in the la- consistently in the last seven or eight years. Notre Dame has lost some guys for the season that were suspended for academic dishonesty for cheating that if that had happened at most other football programs may have missed a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Jack Swarbrick has any control over that. Until Brian Kelly got there, they didn't have a training table because a lot of the, a lot of the kind of, they don't have the academic, they also don't have the similar level of academic support committed to some of these guys where, you know, I think the getting into Notre Dame for some of these players isn't the same as what you know a lot of Notre Dame fans would like to tell you it is, having seen some of these transcripts. But there's not as many places to hide people at Notre Dame as there are at a lot of other schools. And when you when you have some of these long road trips and some of the rigors that that Notre Dame football is expected to deal with, where other places don't have the same things. But to me, that factors into commitment to football. When you don't have the same, I don't want to say commitment to it, but it's just that's what it is. Ultimately, the paradox of Notre Dame football is that the fans want them to win national championships, but they also want to kind of uphold the the ethos of that school, which is that the players, for the most part, are supposed to be treated as normal students. And... That's not maybe that worked in an earlier era. I don't know that that works today. If you want to win national championships, that's fine. But you got to throw your hands up, and basically say we're going to sell our soul. Case in point, our friends at Michigan when they hired Jim Harbaugh, basically. Do you think they sold their soul? Little bit in that there was nobody more critical of the SEC and oversigning and pulling scholarship offers than Michigan fans or Big Ten fans in general. They hired Jim Harbaugh. That's what Jim Harbaugh does. Um, but they're happy with the results. So I guess at some point Notre Dame may have to ask that question. Are they? What, what exactly are they willing to, um, you know, strip away a little bit to achieve this football success? But most of the things we're talking about would not be a Jack Swarbrick decision. Hey, can I get you one other thing before we go to the other question? Uh, Baylor was back in the news this week. Their famed women's basketball coach really popped off on, over the weekend and made some comments that got a lot of attention and a lot of people you know looked at them as completely tone deaf some would say insensitive in the you know in the aftermath of that it also comes out that one of the best players on their team Trevon Blanchard an all big 12 defensive back had some serious issues he is now suspended um, if you were the AD if you were Mac Rhodes at Baylor Stew how would you handle when you have this really successful women's basketball coach said what she said as it relates to, you know, that this is, is Baylor? That's a tough one. I mean, what she said was ridiculous, and then she kind of doubled down on it at her press conference after the next game. Now, 
she apologized for it, but then there was this press uh, conference afterwards. Yeah, where it was like she kept on referring to people to what's a writer from ESPN.com had said in the story. I mean, it's a tough situation because yeah, she she is a uh, you know one of the most distinguished coaches in women's basketball. I'm reluctant to go a little too much into it because I don't I never met her. I've never covered women's basketball, but from all everything I understand, she's one of the most respected coaches in that sport. And I'm sure Mac Rhodes feels like his hands are tied a little bit because if he were to reprimand her, and I think that's probably the most, um, you know, severe thing he could do, then what if she gets ticked off and leaves? You know, there's a whole fan base there that worships her, I assume. So I don't know. I mean, it definitely would be nice if Mac Rhodes or somebody there would come out and and say that they, you know, that that was insensitive and that they don't stand for that. I mean, to me, that was kind of a self-inflicted deal where you feel like, okay, they're going to try to, not, I don't know, move on is the word that really rankles people, but try to, words, move on. But I think that at some point when you have this kind of stuff, it's like, hey, what are you thinking, you know, as the messaging is going on? And I get that, you know, she is probably pretty close to some of the people, including Art Riles, who got run out of there. Um, but just... You know, it's just kind of mind-boggling that that Baylor seems to not be able to get out of its own way. It is. It's there's no question. This thing just keeps going and going and going. And speaking of going and going and going, I have an appointment to get to here in Evanston. So I'll tell you what, we have some great emails that we didn't get a chance to get to. What we're going to do is save them for the next podcast instead of trying to rush through them right now. Uh, as always, if you enjoy the Audible, you should subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And send those emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We will see you next time.